Psalm 107. Let's read the first nine verses. Page 852. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that in your, in your kindness, Lord, you have led so many of us to experience what it means to be in your family. To call you Father, to know Jesus as our brother as well as our King, and to be among those who we share this great obsession, to know the Lord. But Father, we also recognize that often we wander off into dark and difficult places, and we need to hear your voice today. And Lord, there are some who have never given their life to you, never really know what it means to know you. Lord, whatever situation we're in, we pray that you would speak by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I've been telling you, as of last week, we are wanting to work our way through this psalm, which is a psalm that kind of speaks into the, the reality of God's saving power. It tells a number of stories of different kinds of people and how they go from <clears throat> a position of, of danger, of desperation, and how God transitions them into a safe place and his action in their life when they respond to him and call out to him. And uh, this section we come to, beginning in verse 4, some wandered in desert wastes. There's this rich idea of what it means if you are in the desert place. And of course, you know, there's obviously some element of the literal historical fact of Israel having wandered in, in the desert, but I think the psalmist is using this in the poetic way as a picture of the life uh, that you might be living, where you might be in life, and, where, and how God might be dealing with you in those moments. And as I understand it, there are a few things that I think that he means by this when he describes the wilderness or the desert. I think he speaks, first of all, to those who are spiritually seeking, but have never encountered God for themselves, never really felt like you've arrived, never really understood what it means to be part of God's family. You may have had some spiritual appetite, some yearning that's led you this way and that, but it's never resulted in you feeling like you've you found what you were looking for. Then there are those who would undoubtedly say, uh, I, I love Jesus and I belong to his family, but for whatever reason, over the years, or maybe something more short-term, weeks and months, but at some period in your life, you have wandered off into a place that is less than ideal, I mean, spiritually speaking. And the Bible, you know, I, well, I don't know, I think it's actually Christians, not the Bible, but we speak about, we describe this as, uh, we use the language of backsliding. And the, uh, you know, the idea being that in the Christian life, we're called to advancement, to forward journey, or at the very least, standing still. 
But there are moments in life, sometimes all of us, I think, go through this to a certain extent, whether it's short or long, where you, you're no longer facing God, you're no longer walking in his direction. It's as though you have wandered off into some bypath and you, you suddenly realize you're lost. And there's, there's those people. Then there are those people, I think, who, um, for whatever reason, could be dis- experiencing a kind of God-ordained uh, trial or suffering that feels like a desert place, but as a, it's God's work in your life to discipline you. And the reason why I say this is because obviously when Israel wandered in the wilderness, it, it was because God was forging their character and shaping them as a nation because of their rebellion. They, they, he made them wander around for a long time so that he could change them. So this is a few different places where you could find yourself in which this psalm would resonate with you and in which I want to speak. But here's the problem. You may not even recognize or realize that you're in any of those places. So as I list those things, you may think, well, that's not me, and that's not me, and that's not me. You may not even know you're in a desert. Think about people who are not Christians, and maybe you're not a Christian. It's possible that you, you may not realize or Use the language of being in a desert place because you've never experienced what it is to be in a place of satisfaction and, and of, of, of experiencing God's lavish kindness on your life. So you don't know what you're missing. So you wouldn't necessarily understand yourself to be in a place of lack or of need because you've never really experienced what it is to be full. Similarly, for people who have been backsliding, sometimes I think in the Christian life you can wander for a great distance without even realizing that what's happened. But they, you can wander a long way from where you used to be before it dawns on you, or God speaks to you in some way, or a Christian challenges you, or something, just you wake up one day and realize, I've fallen from where I used to be. And I don't, I don't know how it happened, but I'm not where I once was. There's a moment in, in the book of Revelation where Jesus is speaking to a particular church, and he says this to them. He says, I, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. In other words, you used to be so passionate for me. There was zeal in your hearts. You, were, you delighted in me. There was a moment when you were, when we were, you were captivated with, with me. You had the love that you had at first. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. In other words, you have to cast your mind back. It might be weeks, it might be months, it may be years. But you have to cast your mind back to when you last knew what it was to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you may not even be aware of how far you've gone to even acknowledge that you're in a desert place right now. Similarly, for people who are under God's heavy hand of discipline, sometimes it, 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 you can become so much the norm that you forgot what it was to experience his favor and the joy of God because you just haven't learned your lesson yet. And God is keeping you there until he is able to lift you and bring you back to a place where he experiences grace. So this is a problem. We could be in the desert place and not even know that it's true of us. This is why God's word is so potent. You think of the analogy of, if you went to the hospital, you needed to have certain checks. There are extraordinary machines that they can put your body in these days that can use various forms of imaging to look right through your cells and tissues to perceive what's on the inside of you. I mean, this is, this is practically magic, isn't it? I mean, they can look right into you and see what's going on inside your body and know whether there's things 
wrong with you. I find that, that, that totally takes my breath away. I think it's extraordinary. But nobody yet has devised a machine that can look into your psyche or your soul and understand the problems inside us, diagnose us at a spiritual level. And of course, this is what we understand God's word is capable of doing. It's put like this in, in the book of uh, Hebrews. He tells us that the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's like a razor blade, he's saying, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. In other words, it can get between things that should never be separated. Of joints and of marrow, he says, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so what I trust is that as we open up Psalm 107, and you begin to understand what the psalmist is speaking about, that God's word is going to be like that. It's going to be like slicing down through the heart and exposing what's inside so that God can do his, his surgical work in us to repair and transform us. I want to speak to you about the desert, then about the decision, and finally about the delight. The desert, the decision, and the delight. Let's think about the desert then. We're talking here, as I said, about something which is a spiritual reality, not a physical one, obviously. And here's the problem that I've already sort of suggested. If it's a spiritual reality, if it's something you cannot see, how would you ever know that you were in a desert place? And the problem is, of course, you might not. You might not know that you're there. Except for a resonance in you with the characteristics, the sensations, the experiences of what it means to be in the desert place. That you recognize those, those things and you think, okay, this is true of me and this is true. Because there are certain universal experiences that humans go through which are so widespread, so ubiquitous that all of us know and recognize these things immediately and understand and can relate to them in our context. When a there was a great philosopher and theologian in the, in the 400s, a man called St. Augustine, who said this, this line, which, is, which has gone down through history of one of the great, the great lines that expresses the, the yearnings and realities of the human heart. He says, you, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that word where he says, our hearts are restless, the reason why so many people have read and repeated and memorized and requoted that line is because all of us get it. We understand what he's talking about. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so what I want to do is, in understanding the desert, I want to explore this restlessness and this soul sickness is so that you can identify with it. You can understand if this is what, what your problem is and explore some of the characteristics, I think, of what is being described here. Let me show you a few of those things. For one thing, I think, is a sensation of being lost. Some wandered, he said, in desert wastes, finding no way, finding no way. They wandered around. Now, of course, the desert isn't always a, a terrifying place. It can be a beautiful place. I've been to the desert, which I think was probably in the author's mind when he wrote the psalm, the east side of Israel, just beyond the Jordan River. And it's extraordinarily beautiful. 
takes your breath away. And I'd love to go back and see it again. But there's a difference between being in the desert as a place of joy and a place of absolutely terrifying, you know, the place you would never want to be again. Ask yourself, what's the difference between those two experiences? And it's obviously whether you're lost or not, whether you know where home is, whether you know how to get out of the place. You don't want to stay there for long. And here's the problem when we talk about lostness. It, you know, there can be two people who are living practically identical lives, maybe living in the same neighborhoods, traveling on the same commuter rail into the same type of office, doing the same kind of work with the same kind of spouse and the same kind of kids. Two, two people who on the surface of things have two identical lives. And yet, one can be experiencing great joy and the other one, lostness. And you ask yourself, what's the difference between those two things, those two lives, those two lifestyles? And the answer, as I, I understand it, is that it makes all the difference in the world if you have a sense of ultimate direction and of meaning and of purpose which undergirds and drives your life. It makes all the difference in the world. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? You can't necessarily tell when you look on the surface of things, when you compare these two guys, they could be almost identical in their life and lifestyle. But one has a sense of knowing where he's going, and it's about something much bigger than his, his experiences of day-to-day life, and the other can feel totally, totally lost. This is what I'm trying to explain to you. This is what it means to be in the desert. It has nothing to do with your physical realities. It has everything to do with something more ultimate in you. The orientation of your life. Life without God will eventually reveal itself to be totally directionless. There's one thing. You feel lost. Here's another. You can feel totally alone. He says that they wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. And of course, from the author's mind, you think about this, in a world where life was on the, on the edge so often, and existence was challenging, the difference between the desert and the city was a profound difference. You can imagine, couldn't you, for the desert wanderer journeying from place to place with the limited supplies, that the minute they crest the brow of a hill and see the city lights glowing in the darkness beneath them, the sense of joy and overwhelming relief when you know I'm nearly there. The city and the desert are in contrast because I think he's drawing out the distinction between what it means to belong to a place, to, to be somewhere safe, and what it, what it is to wander alone and be in total isolation. Now, of course, being alone isn't always a bad thing. When Jesus went into the wilderness, he did so deliberately. He did so to seek solitude. He did so because he wanted to engage with God. It was at the beginning of his ministry. And sometimes you can only experience God and only have dealings with him when you find yourself in a very alone place. You need to find solitude. But there's a difference, isn't there, between solitude and loneliness. Solitude is only something you can enjoy against the backdrop and the, backdrop and the assumption of, having, of belonging to a community or a family in which you find your place, in which you feel you belong. And it's from that that then occasionally you find solitude when you need to meet with God. You know, for those of you, like myself, who are introverts, you know the need occasionally or often for solitude. You know, when people have been in your house just that little bit too long and you need to get out of the room. I know that feeling. And solitude is a beautiful thing, but it's very, very different, isn't it, from isolation and loneliness. 
which is when you cannot assume that sort of security and joy of community and of family, the deepest level, but you wander through life feeling that no relationship is satisfying the desire that your heart is longing for. It may be that you have all the relationships around you that seem, seem adequate on the surface of things. People who love you, people who are for you, friends, family. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it cures that sense of being alone in the universe. What I think the psalmist is describing is that you can still be in the desert place because you haven't yet found the city, you haven't yet found home. There's lostness, there's aloneness. Here's another characteristic. There's dissatisfaction and emptiness. He says that they are hungry and thirsty. And remembering, of course, he's speaking into heart language, what it means, what ideas that resonate with our, with our souls. And I don't think he means physical hunger or thirst, therefore. I think what he means is he's talking about something that just about everybody on the face of the planet understands. That all of us understand that there are certain desires of the heart which seem insatiable and difficult to satiate, to, to find satisfaction for, as, as try as you may, seek as far as you can, that there are certain longings and desires of the heart that are so hard to satisfy. And almost everybody I've ever met understands what, I'm, what that is. If not all the time, certainly in moments that punctuate your life. And if, not, if you've never experienced that, then I think at some point you certainly will. It's only a matter of time. C.S. Lewis just so articulately spoke into this. He, says, he made the point that if, if, there are, if there are these desires in us that seem impossible to satisfy, doesn't that point to, doesn't that point to a cure, an answer? He put it like this. The Christian says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. be in the wilderness is to understand those appetites, to recognize that nothing you eat or drink meets them. Here's the last feature of the wilderness. You feel exhausted. He says, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Now, I don't mean, I do not mean here the physical exhaustion which characterizes so many of our lives in London when you work at London Pace. And, uh, you know, we all know how that can take its toll from time to time. And uh, some people's spiritual problems actually are, are far more rooted in their, the simple problem that they just aren't resting enough. And they're having a spiritual existential crisis because they just haven't had enough sleep. They just haven't had enough food, enough wine, enough rest with the family and that kind of thing. And often, you know, many people's spiritual ills would be solved if they just left work a little bit earlier, slept a little bit better, and all the rest of it. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about here 
It's, it's something deeper even, even still. Something which is a genuine spiritual problem. That is really the, the coming together or the coalescing of everything I've been describing. That lostness, that aloneness, that lack of satisfaction and those appetites that are never met. That settles into the deepest sickness of all in the human heart, which is hopelessness. I think that's what he's describing here when he says their soul fainted within them. You can imagine, can't you, the desert wanderer, how at some point, after journeying for however long, it gives way to hopelessness and despair and collapse. And some, for some people, that is what spiritual life has felt like. That you have searched, you've looked, and it's felt like you've just wandered around in circles. You've tried different avenues, become jaded eventually. You don't want to try anything new because everything else that you've ever tried has led to nowhere. For some people, that characterizes where they end up. They end up totally exhausted, totally hopeless. And I think, you know, when I look at our nation as a, as a whole, and you consider the fact that we have basically en masse sort of walked away from the knowledge we have of God. And, you know, many people, many more people these days would call themselves atheists, and I think it recently tipped over the 50% mark. And the generation of the nuns, people who've grown up with no religion whatsoever, the nuns. And he also said, well, if that's one of the great features of our age, another great feature you notice is the prevalence, the widespread prevalence of deep psychological and mental illness. And I don't want to make it too simplistic here as though it's always that connection. But isn't it interesting, at the very least, that the further we run from God, the more... We experience these soul problems almost as a heart cry for what we've, we need but have rejected a long time ago. And I think when the psalmist is talking here about those who wandered in desert wastes, friends, this is what he's talking about. It's being in a place where you're not walking with God or never did. Now let's think about the decision. <clears throat> They wandered in desert wastes and then they cried to the Lord, it says. And very often in life, you can, you can point to particular moments that have an, a massively disproportionate uh, influence on the rest of your life, uh, which sort of have a, they're pivotal. They're kind of those moments of tipping point in your life where Certain decisions were made and events occurred which altered the entire trajectory of the rest of your life for various reasons. And I can think about some of those in my life. It's, I can think about the moment I first clapped eyes on my wife. Uh, it was actually at Stansted Airport. And um, I, remem you know, I remember because, uh, because it, she had an impact on me there and then on the spot. And we later got to meet. And uh, I remember... That being a significant moment in my life. I remember also the moment that I almost broke up with her after we'd been sort of seeing each other for a little while, about six months later, and decided not to. That was a significant moment in my life and the lives of my children, apparently. <laughs> um, I remember the day that the photos came back from C's graduation. And uh, I was, we'd been married about three or four years at, the point, at that point. And uh, my wife comes from a long line of feeders. And uh, so having been married for a few years, it had taken its toll on my body. And I was in the photo behind her. 
looking like some kind of monster. And I thought, that was a significant moment in my life. I had to, I had to take this in hand. I need to deal with this. This is a problem. And I've had more and less success in the years since. It's been up and down. But there was a significant moment that affected certain trajectory in my life. Here was another. was um, When we were driving, it was early 2014, and we were very much seeking God about what was next, what, what we were meant to do. I was working in another church, and we were seeking God about what was the next step for us. And one Sunday morning, we were driving home. We crossed the bridge into Waterloo on our way towards home, and uh, it dawned on us. And to this day, we don't know who, who, who thought of this first and how the, the, the conversation began, but this thought began to grow and tumbled into our minds that we could plant a church in Waterloo. There was a need to be here in Waterloo. And it was a pivotal, decisive moment that affected the rest of our lives, and now has impacted many others as well. And, and you can think about that when you spend any time thinking about your own life, and the, the direction you've gone, the, the journey you've taken. You can, you can look at significant moments, can't you? A conversation that you had that altered your choice of, of career, or whether you were going to um, whether you were going to marry, whether you were going to not marry, or whether you were going to, you know, all these kinds of things. You can think about those significant moments, can't you? Now, this is, if this is true in your, in your normal life, this is also true in spiritual life. Of course, we need to hold a couple of things in tension here. There's, there is a sense in which spiritual life can be understood purely as a journey. The journey is a very important concept, I think, in the Bible. Walking with God. And there's a sense in which you should understand that spiritual maturity is learning how to plod. Learning how to do boring, not boring, ordinary, I can put it that way. Do the ordinary consistently, day after day and then year after year. And so that you grow incrementally. And there may be nothing flash or dramatic about your life, but you've been journeying with God. There's been a consistency about you. And spiritual life can be understood that way, positively and negatively. Some people journey in entirely the wrong direction, of course. But there's also just, you know, the journey is important, but so, is the, so are the moments, so are the decisions, so are they, those pivotal moments in your life, whether it's to do something for God that you have had in your heart, or to speak to somebody, or to step out in faith in some way. And I think, I think also about the moments, like this desert moment, God can change your life forever. There are def- definite, pivotal, decisive moments in life. And I, one thing I was, I was meditating on recently, thinking about this, was how, you know, Billy Graham, he passed away well, in a matter of weeks ago. And uh, Billy Graham preached to more people than anyone who's ever lived. I mean, the guy had a phenomenal preaching ministry. His life was, he impacted uh, millions, millions and millions of people, maybe billions. And uh, one thing that was criti- criticized of, of Graham was that you know, his style was to preach to as many people as possible and to call for people to make a decision there and then on the spot, to respond to God. And one of the criticisms people had of Graham was that you know, if people are making a, a, a response to God, in the heat of a moment, an emotional decision, what guarantee is there that any of that's real? Because you know what it's like to be in, in a place where you experience something of hype or of uh, 
the, the heightened sense of emotion in the moment that makes you do things and think things that you wouldn't necessarily think in the cold light of day, and you rethink them in the cold light of day. And a lot of people said, look, just because so many, so many hundreds and thousands of people respond to Graham's preaching doesn't mean that you know, he's had all that fruit, that people have been impacted long term. One of the things that moved me when, when Billy Graham passed away was how many stories began to just work their way out, just in, among my acquaintances, not to mention the ones I re- read online, but among my acquaintances and my own social media feeds, the people I'm connected to, of those whose lives have been impacted in pivotal, momentous, decisive ways because of the ministry and because of what happened to them by God's Spirit in that moment. And I was sharing that my dad was an, an example of this. You know, he was 14 years of age when he heard Billy Graham preach. And uh, he hadn't come from a Christian family. And as he heard the gospel preached, he was, he was actually via relay. So there was, he was preaching in London, and they showed it on a screen in Liverpool. And uh, he was the last person out of his seat to respond to the invitation to, to give his life to Jesus that, that night. But of course, there was nothing fake about that. There was nothing short-lived about that. It changed the direction of my dad's life. And then, of course, that moment led to many other hundreds and other th- thousands of other people being impacted through my dad's own life of ministry. And, and the ripples keep, keep going. It's, you know, it's not just about the journey. It's also about the moment. It's about the decisions. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Because here's one reason. Because it puts the... It puts the weight on your shoulders. It puts you in a place of responsibility before God. You must understand that there comes moments in life when you have to make a decision. And if you refuse to make a decision, that is a decision. And that this matters in spiritual realities. There comes a moment when you have to stop and decide. You've been wandering for too long. What are you going to do? It also underlines, though, the miraculous power of God in this way. That if we only think about spiritual life as a journey, then it can actually lead to a kind of spiritual insecurity because a journey is kind of a bit nebulous. You never know quite how far along you are or whether you're coming or whether you're going. But if you can look back to specific moments in your life when God turned you around, there's there's great security in that. This is why I think the New Testament speaks about becoming a Christian as a miraculous event. That the God in his power has intervened and done something extraordinary in that moment. That's why it uses the language of new birth, of new creation, of justification, of something that happens to you. And I want you to understand that because it's almost like a turnstile. There's a difference between a moment before and a moment after. And you ask yourself, well, was it me, my decision, or was it God in his miraculous power? And the answer is, well, yes. It's, it's both. You know, you decide, but God, God was there. In fact, he enabled you to decide, and then he rushed in and re- renewed you and transformed your life. But decide. But you must decide. How does he bring you to the point where you can decide? You've been wondering. You need to turn around. You need to call out to God. How does he bring you to that? Well, a few things. One is that he, you have to be sufficiently humbled, first of all. And I think that's the purpose of the desert. 
that if God is putting you in a place where it feels that you're wilting and suffering and struggling, there's a reason. Because partly he just needs to break you. He needs to break your pride. He needs to bring you to a point where you're no longer going to try and rule your own life without surrender to the Holy Spirit. He has to bring about sufficient humbling in you. Then he also has to bring about in you sufficient faith. Now it doesn't need to be much. Jesus says a very small amount of faith is enough. But it has to be enough that you, you choose God. That you choose Jesus. That you say, okay, that's the way I need to go. That's the amount of faith you need. The faith to make that choice. And then he begins to turn your life. And it's, then there's the decision itself. It's not a sophisticated thing. It's not a complex thing. It's not a, a difficult thing in the sense of intellectually or in any other way. You don't have to be worthy even. It's just simple. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. This is actually the life skill which you mastered first of all after you were born. That's how sophisticated this is. One of my children came out and stared at the world for four hours, absorbing it all in. The other one came out screaming. They both learned to scream in their time. It's the first thing you learn as a child is the cry. The cry It's instinctive, it's gut, level, visceral. And that's all you need to call out to God. It's no more complex than that. Then they cried to the Lord. I love how Jesus describes this in Luke's gospel. When he's describing the, the, the problem of the son. These, there are these two boys in the family. Both of them have their own problems. But the younger boy is the one who, who wanders. He's the one who finds himself in the desert. Because he asks his father for his share of the inheritance. And he goes off and he wants to spend the whole lot. You know, this is some kind of typical younger sibling thing. Irresponsible younger son. And he takes all this money and he runs off into a far land and he just spends the whole lot without a thought to tomorrow. And of course, eventually, as happens, it runs out. And then in running out, his happiness also seems to run out. Whatever temporary fleeting pleasures he was experiencing, they're gone now because he no, no longer can support the lifestyle. And all the friends that he had that only loved him for his money have gone. He finds himself in isolation. He finds himself lost. He finds himself hungry and thirsty. He finds himself utterly exhausted. He finds himself feeding pigs. And in that moment, Jesus describes the turning point, the pivotal moment in the story where it says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? When he came to himself, when he woke up, when it dawned on him, when he cried to the Lord. That's the decision, friends. I want to talk to you lastly about the delight. Think carefully for a moment here about, about God's action in the psalm. What he does and what he does not do. As soon as the wanderer cries out to him, there's a response from God. And there are a number of things you need to be sure of when you call out to God for help. Here's, here's one. He will never ignore the seeker. It says in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me 
and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You can take enormous comfort from that. I think whenever somebody genuinely is running after God, they find what they're looking for. He'll never ignore you. He'll never reject you either. In John 6, Jesus puts it like this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Anyone who, who asks me for help, he says, I will help. Without question. Without qualification. I will never turn someone away. And also, he doesn't require any form of payment for the help that he wants to give to you. In Isaiah 55, it's put like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. There is no qualification, there is no amount of resources you need to ask God for the help that he wants to give you. And this is what the psalm shows you. This desert wanderer has nothing. Absolutely unworthy of God's help. Absolutely. No doubt ended up in the desert soup through their own fault, through some kind of rebellion. And yet it says, as soon as they cried to the Lord, what happens? It says, he delivered them. He led them. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. What I'm trying to show you, friends, is how quickly God wants to move in with his power and might to change your life and to bring about the extraordinary deliverance which he promises to those who call out to him. I love how the New Testament speaks about this power of God. Today's Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is, is Resurrection Day. Although in my understanding, every day is Resurrection Day. This is why we don't pay much attention to Easter. It's all Resurrection Day, right? But... Um, on Resurrection Day, we remember that Jesus rose from the grave. God's power came in and resurrected his body, and now he's living, ruling, and reigning at God's right hand. But here's the extraordinary thing, friends. In the New Testament, it says that it is exactly the same power that God works in us when he lifts us from the desert and brings us to life in the city, in his home. It's resurrection power. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. He says, he speaks of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. He's saying that's the same power that's at work in you. It's resurrection power. And to me, there would be nothing more fitting on resurrection of Sunday than that God would perform those many resurrections in our lives. Because that's what he raised Jesus for, so that he could pour out that same power on us and do the same thing in us, the same transforming work in us. Amen. And you ask yourself, well, what is on the other side of resurrection? What's in the, on the other side of crying out to the Lord? Of, what's on the other side of the desert? And I think the best way I know to how to answer is, is to say something like this. It's, it's what you were looking for in the first place. It's what you were always looking for. But maybe you didn't realize that the, the desire behind the desire, the deepest desire, that's what God wants to come and fulfill in you. That's why I'm speak, speaking here of the delight. Because I think that there are 
certain desires that we all understand, which were kind of God-shaped desires. I think about the kind of universal sense of father hunger. Even if you've had the best out in the world, there is a sense in which I think all of us understand what it, the longing for the perfect father. Another way you can describe it is, is a kind of homesickness. You know, even if you've got the perfect home, with the log fire and the beautiful kitchen and all the rest of it, and however you dream your home to be, even if you have that, you can still experience homesickness that you, you know there's a place where you belong and you haven't quite found it. Or another way to understand it is a kind of spiritual void. This is very common in the way people speak about their testimony or their story of how they came to God and what God did in them and what led them to seeking him. Is that people often speak of the void in their heart, the spiritual void, the kind of bottomless pit, the desires which no matter what they crammed in there, or no matter what they pursued, no matter what pleasures they ran after, it was like they were never satisfied. C.S. Lewis uses the language of nostalgia to capture this desire. I think that's such a beautiful way of understanding it because I think I understand what he's talking about. Let me read you a little bit of one of his essays. He wrote, he says, I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia, romanticism, and adolescence. He says, this, this is most awakened when by the power of beauty. That's when we most understand this longing, this deep longing, which somehow is never quite satisfied. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. So in other words, if you try and find all your soul's desire in the, the things of earth, they eventually just turn into idols. He says, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I find that language just somehow echoes with me in a really deep way. That we all understand what deep nostalgia is and what deep longing is. And we understand also that nothing on this earth meets those desires. And it says here, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And the other sign of resurrection is, is delight. That's what the Bible tells us. To be a Christian is actually to experience happiness like you've never known before. And I don't mean the happiness of momentary ecstasy I don't mean the shallow kind of happiness that comes and go. I mean something that settles deep in your heart. That you feel you found what you were made for. A deep existential happiness. This is the delight that he's talking about. You are in the desert place. You're hungry and thirsty. You're exhausted. You, you tried everything and nothing worked. Then you cried to the Lord. He raised you. He led you by a straight way to the city and then he filled your life with good things. And so I want to ask you as, as I close, are you going to continue to chase mirages if that's what you're doing? 
You know, a mirage is the effect of heat rising off the desert floor. As it bends the light through the air, your eyes seem to perceive water. And desperate people in deserts have been led far astray, chasing the illusion of water, and it's led to their death. And I think there is no better picture, actually, of what many people's spiritual searching looks like. It looks like the pursuit of a mirage. Whether it's seeking the waters of earthly satisfaction by physical pleasure. You can think about the typical sex, drugs, and rock and roll approach to pursuing the mirage. Or whether it's a spiritual search, something that seems more noble on the face of it, but ultimately also is just a mirage because it was never based in truth. And you could continue running in, around in the desert in circles and chasing things that will never, never quite scratch the itch, never quite fill your heart. Or you can surrender and cry out. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you that at the end of our searching, you are there. And Lord, in our, in our stupidity, really, we sometimes believe the illusions and chase things that actually lead us into danger and lead us into wandering and lostness and aloneness. And Lord, we are such thick-skulled people that so often it takes us a long time before we've even realized that we've lost our way. Lord, we ask you for mercy. And I pray, Father, that you would be affecting in lives here, small resurrections today, as wanderers call out to you and are led home. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the blood that he spilled so that we could be forgiven and our sins could be atoned. That you would call us friends rather than enemies. We thank you for your great power made available to us through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.